Well, good morning. I'm glad you braved the weather to be here. It was beautiful. I got here this morning early, and uh, of course, the snow had covered the parking lot by then. It just reminds you of how, when you see that, um, that says that God washed away our sins, making as white as snow. So whenever you see that, you can think about that reality. As we continue in our study this morning, I want us to be very intentional about preserving that picture of who God is as we begin to understand and appreciate what was created in His image. That image where God exists in one undivided nature within that unified fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a relationship of equity where they are distinguished by their roles and relationships with one another without in any way diminishing the deity that they all equally possess. And that unity within diversity, as we will see this morning, is then built into the marriage relationship created in the image of God. Marriage was created by God to reflect the attributes that originate in Him. And so... That's why as we think through this together, I believe we can better understand our relationships based on our understanding of who He is, but also believe that we can understand who He is a little bit better by appreciating the beauty of the relationships He created. So as we look at that together this morning, let's set our hearts uh, on the Lord. Father, we come to You as we open up Your Word, as we rightly should. Humble, quiet, listening, and desiring to uh, have our life reflect the pattern, the, the beauty, the creation that you have made in your image. And so I pray that as we do that this morning, you would do a work in our hearts and in our lives in a significant way. We offer this time to you. It is yours. Have your way. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as we begin to look at marriage, let's go back to the beginning and look at God's original design. So if you would, flip to the front of your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, the familiar passage. And I want us to look at this together. If you will, begin reading with me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of, the, one of his ribs, closed up his flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This now, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this cause... A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become 
one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. Adam was male, created in the image of God. Eve was female, also created in the image of God. And so, according to the original design, God created one man to be united with one woman in a lifetime relationship of love that we call marriage. Now, I want you to notice that the Bible gives no indication that Adam made any specific request or had any possible solutions for a problem that he had. You'll notice that God brought an awareness to Adam by creating all the animals, taking them to him, and asking Adam to name each one of them. And only after having gone through that exercise did Adam then appreciate what God already knew, and that was, in all of that creation, there was not a helper suitable for him. He named all the animals and recognized that none of them met that need that he had. And so the importance about that is to recognize that this was not man's idea. He didn't give God any suggestions. God took the initiative and did for the man what the man understood he needed, that God knew all along, and he said, this is what I'm going to do to solve that problem. Marriage was his idea. He created it from the beginning with that in mind. And although man and woman were each created into the, from the image of God, that marriage relationship now represented something even deeper than any one of them possessed on their own. There was something significant about what took place when man and woman came together in that relationship of love we call marriage. Now, this is important because it elevates the the beauty and the value of marriage when we realize that it was patterned after God's own image. It's kind of like when I do a a woodworking project. And if, if there's something in there that has a very intricate inlay or some detailed scroll work that I want to then produce in my project, okay? When that happens, I'll tell you that I do not have the ability to do that on my own. So what I'm going to do to represent the beauty of that original design is create a pattern, okay? Off of that original design so that I can then put it into my project and it protect and preserve the reflection of that original design because I'm following the pattern and not depending on my own ability to do that apart from it. Well, in the same way, in marriage, God is the pattern from which the marriage relationship was created. And when we follow that original design, all the beauty and wonder that exists in who God is is then preserved inside the beauty of the marriage relationship that He created. And in the same way, when we decide to go on our own and do our own little work, it never represents the original beauty of the original design. That's why our understanding of marriage must be grounded in a biblical understanding of of who God is. Because only then 
will that one nature fellowship of the Trinity then be understood as it is represented in that one flesh relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And I want you to understand that that one flesh relationship in marriage is much more than just physical intimacy. It represents the unity that is reserved for the husband and wife that reflects the depth of the unity that we see in God Himself. Let me give you an example. In the Trinity, we see a fellowship that is exclusive and interdependent upon one another. In other words, no one person of the Trinity, as we've walked through together, ever does anything independent of the others, right? We've looked at the passage where Jesus tells His disciples that He does nothing on His own initiative. But everything is done in response to and in accordance with the will of God. You'll remember when Jesus was speaking to His disciples about the Holy Spirit, He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will not do anything on His own initiative. But whatever He hears, He will speak. Even Jesus goes on to say, if I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. It is My Father who glorifies Me. The fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is exclusive to themselves. They are interdependent with one another. And one can in no way be separated from the other. And as He created the marriage relationship, God intended for it to be the same. Remember He said, What God has joined together, let no man separate. Because the bond creates an interdependence. There is a unity that God never intended to be broken. It's also why when the writer of Proverbs speaks to the man, he says, drink water from your own fountain, running water from your own well. It's figurative language that instructs the man to reserve his most intimate love exclusively for his wife, and for the wife to do the same for her husband. Like we see in the Trinity, marriage love is exclusive. It should not be shared with anyone else. And as a result, there is this interdependent bond, a oneness that is made to last for a lifetime. It unites a man and a woman in, in ways that go beyond just physical into the, the spiritual and emotional aspects of who they are as a couple. When one feels pain, the other feels that pain deeply as well. When one feels joy, the other one shares in that joy as well. Like the Trinity, the love of the marriage is designed to seek the highest good of the other. And so, really, the greatest joy of one is seeing the glory of the other. It is a self-sacrificing, life-giving love. And when we follow the pattern of the original design, these are the attributes that God has built into the relationship that was created out of His very own image. And within that unity... There 
is an undiminished, there is an undiminished unity even within the, the diversity of roles, both in what we see in God, but also in the relationship between a husband and a wife. As we've talked about before, the, the submission of the Son in no way diminishes the deity of who He is. In fact, the Father glorifies that sacrificial submission of the Son. The writer of Ephesians tells us that, that, that God set His Son, seating Him on the right, at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority, over all power and dominion, and over every name in this age as well as the age to come. Submission is given great honor from God's perspective. And that same honor prevails as the wife lovingly submits to the, the spiritual leadership of the husband. And that this in no way diminishes the value of the wife any more than, than Jesus' submission diminishes His deity in the Godhead. In fact, like the Father, Scripture tells us God instructs the man, the husband, to honor his wife, to protect her, to cherish her, to exalt her above any other love in his life. It's a love that is not divorced from God's love, but actually flows out of and is made possible because of God's love. I think it's amazing to consider the thought that divine love was built into the marriage relationship. Divine love, it was built into the marriage relationship. And it's encouraging, or it should be, that, that that's what we experience by His intent when we follow His design. And the truth is, we're just scratching the surface. Because there's a whole list of things that we could walk through and spend time considering in that same way. Marriage was reflected, or was created to reflect the, the beauty of God's own image. And it's the reason that it says in this passage that the Adam and Eve were, were naked and unashamed. It was complete innocence. There was no fear of, of being exploited. There was no guilt there was no shame. Because at this point, there's no sin. Right? But I want you to look very closely at what happens when Satan enters the scene. Okay? Look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was crafty, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in that day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings because at this point they are ashamed. I want you to notice in what happens in this scene, Satan purposefully attacks the order of God's original design. Our enemy's sinful deception always invites us to live outside the context of God's original design. Sin literally means missing the mark. And that mark is what God intended to begin with. And so when you see Satan at work, and I promise you, you can look at every example in your life and in Scripture, what he's doing, he is inviting you to live outside the context of God's original design. Why? Because as we just looked at, God built goodness into his design. All that was created by God was made to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. But Satan's ultimate goal is to distract you from that abundant life. As you've already seen, God created marriage with a specific design in mind. And look at what Satan does. By all account, they're both there. But Satan goes specifically to the woman to have the conversation. He intentionally bypasses the divinely ordained spiritual leadership of the husband and purposely puts Eve in a position that was outside of her original design. And I need you to understand that I am in no way suggesting that, that Eve was less valuable than Adam or even that she was incapable of taking that lead. What I am saying is that God ordainly divined, spe- divinely ordained specific roles of a husband and wife within the marriage relationship. Just like we see within the Trinity, that fellowship of equality. And yet Satan intentionally deceives by inviting them both, for that matter, to live outside of the original design. He calls Eve to the front and pushes Adam to the back. Satan actually does this all the time, and he did the very same thing with Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is important for us to understand. Matthew chapter 4. This is the temptation of, of, of Jesus with Satan, and I want you to see what he does compared to what happened in the garden. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now look at Jesus' answer. He says, But he answered and said to them, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I want you to notice what Satan's doing here. He's inviting Jesus to operate outside the fellowship of the Trinity. He wants Jesus to make a decision that's independent of the others. Come on, Jesus, you can turn the stone into bread. Do it. That's why Jesus responds the way he does in verse 4. He says, I'm not doing anything on my own initiative, but only that which comes from and is in conformity to the will of God. 
If you look at the other temptations, you're going to see the very same thing. If you really look at any example of sin, it's the very same pattern. Satan's desire is to invite you to step outside the boundaries of God's original design. If we go back to the garden now, you'll see how that effect of sin has an impact on the relationship. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, if you're not there, just listen to me. It's just the second half of that verse where God is explaining the outcome of what just happened. Speaking to the woman, he says, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What he's saying here is that sin has now caused a great reversal, such that the woman will try to be in control of the man instead of submitting to her leadership. And the man will seek to promote his own agenda and rule over the woman instead of seeking to honor his wife. Choose any sin. It's the same pattern. The invitation of our enemy to live outside of God's design. Divorce. What does it do? It seeks to separate what God has joined together. Homosexuality. What does it do? It wants to bring together what God said needed to be separate. It reminds me of a response that Tim Keller gave when he was asked a great question about what do Christians think about homosexuality. He was actually visiting to a group of non-believers, anywhere from atheists to other Eastern religions. And so I was real curious as to how he would answer this question. It applies very much to what we're talking about this morning. Looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, Keller says that that Jesus is teaching that all who follow Christ are duty-bound to love their neighbor regardless of their beliefs or opinions, including those of sexuality. It doesn't matter because God calls us to love without boundary. He goes on to say that that kind of love is central to the gospel message which proclaims that we are not saved by our works and good deeds, but on God's unmerited favor, which is intended to pull out the self-righteousness and superiority that tends to be found in religious belief. In other words, I'm not going to heaven because I'm not gay, and you're not going to hell because you are. Now, those are my words, but my point is this. We are both saved by grace when we surrender our own selfish desires and choose instead to live in accordance with God's design. We don't need to get our life together in order to be accepted by God. We need to be accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ and then let Him instruct us in how to get our life in order. Salvation is the belief that Jesus Christ lived a life that I could not live and that He died a death that I should have died. And I need His righteousness to be credited to my life. That I trust in His provision and that I'm willing to go His way and not my own way. My life from that moment of faith is dedicated to conforming my heart and all that I am to the will of God. His good and perfect will. And if that's what I believe, 
then I'm going to trust that God's Word instructs me in how to live in accordance with my own design. It's not busy work, Keller says. He says, it's like when an owner's manual tells you that you need to change the oil in your car ever so many miles. It's saying that because the car was designed for that purpose and if you violate it, that you actually do damage to the car. The Christian view of homosexuality is that you're going against your own design and missing out on God's best in pursuit of a selfishly, ultimately destructive path. But this is our enemy's strategy. He wants us to go in a way different than what God ultimately designed. And understand that as we're talking about these things, it's not a matter of first best and second best, something that's close to what God wanted but not quite, so it's okay. This is ultimately a battle for your soul. And the destruction of life apart from living in accordance with God's truth. That's a path that leads to destruction. And he intends for it to be eternal. That's his goal. But I believe God knew all this in the beginning. And so I think he actually built within the marriage relationship the power of a redeeming love. Let me show you what I mean. I'll give you a couple examples. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, Peter's writing to give instruction and he's speaking specifically about husbands and wives. And Verse 1 he says, In the same manner, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them is, are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. You see, Peter is encouraging the wife to live according to their design, even if the husband is not holding up their end of the bargain. Why? Because built within the design is a redemptive power that actually can win the heart of her husband without a word even spoken. And the same is true of the husband and his love if that role were reversed. The love of marriage is designed to have a sanctifying effect in a relationship between a husband and a wife. And we've talked about this before. I mean, if you've been married very long, you realize that it uncovers selfishness that stays hidden when you're single. Because then it's all about you, and when you're married, that changes. So all of a sudden, you realize how selfish you are, how impatient you are, how inclined you are to be dishonest, to cover up things that you don't want to reveal. It works within a marriage really like no other relationship, and that's not an accident. But right alongside the revelation of these sins, by God's design is built in the power of love and forgiveness and grace. So that within, think about this, within the context of the marriage relationship is a rehearsal of the gospel message repeated over and over and over again. It's all a part of God's design. Let me give you another example. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
This is what Paul says in, in this letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 12. It says, But to the rest I say not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband, her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Sanctification here is this idea of how sin is revealed when exposed to the light of righteousness. In both passages, the one we looked at in Peter and then the one here in Corinthians, the Scripture is teaching us about the the powerful influence of a believing spouse where their righteous love can expose the life that is set on a destructive path. Because when you're obedient to the Word, you become a light of salvation to the world, including, maybe even especially, in your own home. You are testifying to the goodness of God's design. And I know people who are in our church who live this reality most every day. Their husband or their wife may not be a believer or at least not walking with the Lord, and yet they live in faithful obedience in the hope that their spouse will see in them what is ultimately missing in their own life. Just as an encouragement for those who are in that situation, I believe your faithful witness in your marriage relationship is the most powerful witness for Christ that your husband or your wife, your spouse, will ever see. Because I believe God designed it in the marriage to be that way. And I can't think of a more devoted love than one that ultimately leads your spouse to a place of saving faith or intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. So stay the course. There is a redemptive love built in to the marriage relationship according to God's design. Now, I know as we talk through this, there are a lot of us, and even I, as I thought thought through this for this morning, asked that question, then why in the world is it so hard? Right? Why is it so hard? Because it all sounds really good, and it is. So why is it so hard? Well, here's what I think. I really believe that God did not design the marriage relationship to inherently be difficult. I believe sin is what makes the marriage relationship difficult. In other words, we don't have problems in marriage because there's something wrong with the design. We have problems in marriage because we often want to live outside of that design. We're selfish. We want to go our own way. But here's the good news. God can use even those hard times, those difficult moments, to bring something good out of something very hard, something very difficult. Beauty from ashes. He can rebuild, renew, restore, starting from wherever you are right now. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because some of you are in a great situation. You think, my marriage is great. I've got news for you. God can make it better. There are some of you who are saying, 
My marriage is broken. And I've got good news for you. He can heal what has been broken. There's some of you who are not married, who are maybe considering marriage. And I want you to be excited about the goodness that's in store when you follow His design. We thankfully have great examples of this in our own church. There are people who have been married 30, 40, 50 years. And I, I, let me just encourage you, go ask them what life is like as you stay committed through the good times and the hard times to see if God actually accomplishes what He ultimately designed your marriage to be in the first place when you trust Him. When two people committed together commit themselves to the Lord, what happens? And I believe what you're going to find are testimony after testimony of how the goodness of God gets better and better the closer you live in fellowship with Him and in your relationship with one another. Like I said, we have plenty of examples of that in our own church, but let me finish up this morning with a, a sweet example of a, an Italian couple have been married uh, for almost 50 years. So listen to what they have to say. The date was December 29, 1960. We got married in Italy. And it was a beautiful day, yeah. I was 19 and he was 26. Long time ago. <laughs> I think we like each other a lot. <laughs> he doesn't go to bed without saying I love you. That's one thing in marriage that's a must. And he makes her always you feel like you're the best and you're the beautiful. Always he tells me I'm beautiful. She does everything to make you happy. Not just me, everybody. She's really open heart with everybody. Thank that's, you. That's true. Always I tell her, wait by the door, I go get a car. That's how I do all the time. And I get in the sun. Watch the sun. Watch this. Watch that. Yeah, he take care of me. And of course, I do the cooking. And we finish to eat. He, he says, don't move. I take care of the dishes. That's one thing that, you know, you do whatever you want. You cook, I clean. We, we, lo we love each other. And... Uh, we trust. We trust. We respect. We respect. And we fight, too. <laughs> <laughs> when she repeats the things too many times. That's, that's, that's what I go crazy. Every day, same story. Every day, same story. Anytime she starts, I say, hey, here we go again. Always same story. It's enough, enough, it's enough. Because he never listens. He has his heart head. He's very moody. But uh, doesn't last long. But when he gets moody, I say, why you get, why? Just leave me alone. Okay, go for it. It gets on my nerve, yeah. When I get on your nerve. I, you get on my nerve because you repeat. I didn't repeat. I just say so, I see. <laughs> you see what I mean? That's the argument. <laughs> After a couple hours, everything will be as the same. better than before. Me personally, like I said, first thing you put God in your marriage, the first thing. And not only that, you have to work out, you communicate. Because everybody seems like they have more things to do. But you have to make quality time. Quality time, that's very important for a, for a couple today. Like I said, he's my best friend. We become closer, closer. Let her know 
you respect her, kiss her every morning, kiss her good night. Kiss <laughs> during the day. <laughs> Even during the day. This way everything should be okay. That's what I do. He's a good man. He's a good man. He would do anything to make me happy. I would never, never go back and get somebody else. Never. He's my favorite guy. Well, that's the promise. It gets better and better with time. And so just let me encourage you to um, take some time to consider uh, the importance of following what was the original design that God made for us to experience the very best of really not just what He has to offer, but who He is. His own attributes are built within the beauty of the marriage relationship. And so what a great thing for us to enjoy and appreciate even more and more as time goes on. Isn't it just like God to do something like that? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your love and for the multitude of ways in which that is revealed. As we've talked about this morning, we know that the most wonderful way that love was revealed was through the life of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. Your love was displayed through that sacrifice. And then what a beautiful thing to know that when we put our faith and trust in you, that you say that that love that exists in you and was revealed in your Son is then poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit. And then, as if that wasn't enough, when we follow the design of what you've created in your image, in that image of love, like marriage, then we begin to experience a depth and a fullness of that love that, that originates in you and in your fellowship within the Trinity that now can be understood in a more meaningful way through the relationship between a husband and a wife. And that as each day goes on and that sanctifying work of your redeeming love in the life of a husband and a wife shapes and conforms us into the image that you ultimately created us to be, then it just gets sweeter and sweeter with time. That even in those difficult times, you bring beauty from ashes. That no matter where we are at this morning, if it's good, you can make it better. If it's broken, you can make it well. If we are looking ahead and wondering what life would be like, that we would see how good it is when we follow your design. And I pray that wherever we are, married or unmarried, that that truth really invades every aspect of our being, that we look at your word to see what you intend and trust that your way is always best and to recognize the enemy's intent to distract us from your original design because he wants to rob us, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he accomplishes that by pulling us away from what you created ultimately for our good. So may we trust you more than we believe Him and experience the fullness of what you intend for us because of your great love. Thanks for that reminder this morning. We love you only because you first loved us. Amen. Have a great day.